Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. As you know, relentless stretch of games coming up for West Virginia basketball. Ranked number 17 in the country can increase that significantly, could also fall off a cliff if things don't go well here. Maybe we haven't seen a stretch of games like this in quite some time. Who knows what to expect with the way the Mountaineers have played this season and the way they've been affected by their roster and COVID and any other issues on and off the court. Sometimes there's truth in numbers, and to help us out with data, stats, and analytics today, I welcome in the increasingly popular Evan Miyakawa. Evan, thank you for coming along here, and I have to tell you, people listening or people on the board are very eager to hear what you have to say. Um, I'm assuming you're getting a lot of this lately because a lot of your your stats have been going around the web. Yeah, I'm really uh, grateful to be on here, Mike, so thanks for having me on. Uh, it was certainly fun to be able to connect with West Virginia fans Specifically talking about Miles McBride and just what he's doing for the Mountaineers. It's really incredible. And uh, yeah, it's just been a really fun season. This is my first season having this stuff out publicly. So there's been a lot of good engagement with it. Ah, I like this. So you were workshopping behind the curtain for a while before you let everybody in? Yes, that is definitely correct. Um, not, not for terribly long, but I've got data going back several seasons. And I've been building this up for a while. Uh, but this, this, uh, this season was the first that I actually made a big public push, put it online and, you know, tried to allow it to gain exposure, which it certainly has to an even greater degree than I expected. So I'm, I'm thanking, thanking the Lord for that opportunity, but it's been obviously a really fun season. And so it's just another great example of, um, a team that I can give some love to, uh, in West Virginia that really deserves it. You're going to see quite a bit of them in the next couple of days, I guess the next couple of weeks, they played it back to back unusual thing. Um, I want to ask you before we get too far into things here about something you've just kind of gotten into with the COVID pause and the effect that that has had. Um, and that's gotten some traction. Other people have picked up on that. It's very interesting. Um, as much as you want to share, I'm sure you want people directed to your site, which is E-V-A-N-M-I-Y-A.com. Um, COVID's a real thing this year, and it's affecting teams, the sport conferences, the top 25. Um, I don't know, just kind of letting us in here, icebreaker, so to speak. What have you found? What do you think? Yeah, there's so many more variables this year than a normal year just due to the nature of COVID and how it's affecting the sport. And I think most of us had been kind of curious about how teams were performing after they came off a COVID pause. But uh, I was especially interested in actually looking at that data, given this last week with Michigan State's uh, clunker against Rutgers, along with St. Louis losing against Dayton after being out for a long time. And so Given the nature of my website, I collect data on this stuff, and so I just kind of threw together a, a data set and was able to analyze it and see that, yes, there is a small um, impact for teams uh, coming off COVID pause, specifically at least two weeks in length, uh, that there's a definite um, a performance dip in that first game. And the longer that they've been off the court, the higher that impact. So I think in general it was about, you know, in a normal tempo game, you know, about 2.3 points. Uh, in terms of disadvantage for those teams. But again, that really does depend on how long they've been off. I think anything less than two weeks becomes more negligible, but uh, it's certainly worth noting, and I was glad to be able to share that with people. I'm not sure we have enough life yet after the returns to see how this is going to extrapolate over time. Could it be a prolonged effect? Could it be just a quick window because they're just coming back and they shake off all the rust and cobwebs? Do you anticipate that it could have lasting effects? Is it TBD? What do you think? I think uh, I haven't done as strict an analysis on the second game back from a COVID pause, but it seems like there's only real, uh, really conclusive effects in that first game. Uh, so 
um, in terms of trying to place bets or, or make strong adjustments for a team's second game back, there's not really been enough um, enough effect. But certainly that first game is, I think, what matters most. Yeah, I think you're going to have a lot of West Virginia fans shaking their fist at their cell phone or their laptop right now because they've watched West Virginia three games back and they see people who are, you know, lungs, legs, bounce, lift, anything like that, not quite there yet. And then, you know, never mind, you don't practice for two weeks. It's a real big part of the season, too, and I'm glad you kind of turned light on that, which is generally what you do. Um, that was kind of a preview of your work, a little bit more about you. You're at Baylor. You're a Ph.D. candidate. Um, I don't know this yet, so I'm very interested. Is this a hobby of yours that I guess as a PhD candidate you've carved out time for because you have so much free time as a PhD candidate or it, does this dovetail a little bit with what you're studying and what you endeavor to do as a PhD candidate and perhaps as a career? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm in my fourth year of my program and I'm planning on graduating with my PhD uh, either December of this year or May of the next, depending on how quickly things go. Uh, this project is not a part of any of my official uh, dissertation work, so it's more of a side project. Um, it's, it's certainly very natural for me. I've always been really interested in sports analytics, and that's one of the fields I'm interested in pursuing in terms of jobs once I graduate. Uh, but my, my official dissertation work uh, has to do with other um, more lesser-known uh, aspects of statistics. So this is more a, just a side project that I've done in my free time. All right, let's not brush past that. What is your dissertation involving? So, um, you know, it's probably the, the title of my dissertation at this point is probably not going to be under, understandable for most. But my, my first chapter is called uh, Bayesian Computational Methods and Implementations. Uh, so I'm tackling a number of different subjects uh, in my dissertation. And some of that's still to be determined. But um, I'm it's been uh, it's been fun making progress on that. And I get to quote, blow steam, if you will, uh, doing college basketball stuff in my free time when I'm not working on that. I believe we'll get to the Bayesian in a little bit. I hadn't heard that word before. I saw it on your website. I think people are curious about that as far as a specific metric. So let's make sure we come back to that. But as far as your interest in the sport, did you play? Did you just always enjoy the game? Did you see a connection between the sport and numbers? How did you get involved in this? So I I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and obviously okay. basketball is really big in the Hoosier State. I specifically uh, grew up being a big Butler basketball fan, living in the same city where the Bulldogs play. And uh, in 2010, I went to the Butler-Duke National Championship game where Gordon Hayward missed that half-court shot that would have won it for them. And I think that's really the start of my college basketball fandom, both for Butler and just in general. And uh, growing up in a very... Um, math heavy household both my parents have their masters in statistics and now i'm working on my phd in that uh it was just very natural for for me to grow up thinking about how numbers correspond to the sport and so um it's uh i've always loved college basketball the most of any sport really and so you know having the opportunity to apply some of my statistical education uh, to that area is something that um, i've always been trying to do and and so it's just really a lot of fun for me so we were in the building together that night then, weren't we? I covered that Final Four covering West Virginia. And I remember reaching out instinctively and grabbing the person next to me, Colin Dunlap, um, because I thought that shot went in. And what I remember specifically is about how cagey Butler was about analytics. And Brad Stevens, I don't want to say he was a pioneer, but Butler maybe didn't belong on that stage, you would say, right? As consistently as they got there, but they had some sort of a sauce, special sauce, some sort of an advantage there. He came from pharmaceuticals and Lilly, and all of a sudden, so many years later, he's coaching the Boston Celtics. Um, to what extent did did Butler 
and their obsession with numbers and using them to their advantage hook you a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, that was, uh, I was still relatively young at the time. I was born in uh, 95. So that would have put me at uh, 15, I guess. So I wasn't fully as aware of what Brad Stevens was doing then, but certainly now looking back at, at his philosophy and, and even those two final four runs for Butler, what they were able to pull out of their limited, you know, roster in terms of, you know, high level recruits and athleticism and to, to make two national championships in a row. Granted, you always have to have a little bit of luck to get there in March Madness, but it was certainly an impressive feat. And I know that had a lot to do with them trying to get every possible angle they could with the analytics. So very aspiring. And uh, that's, that's something I hope to replicate in my research as well. Why do we still have an old school, new school, five on the floor versus numbers off the floor battle? It seems like there's a place to use this stuff to your advantage. You don't have to use it, but you certainly don't have to outright reject it. There's fewer of those people who outright reject it, but those people still exist. Um, I don't understand why we can't coexist with the people on the floor, but also the people on the bench who are crunching numbers and showing you patterns and ideas and evidence and proof that things can work, things should work if you take the numbers and you put them with the five on the floor. Why does that battle still exist? I think part of the issue is particularly for coaches who have been doing this for a long time and really know their stuff. A lot of the analytics that are popular are coming from people like myself, for example, who never played high school or college basketball, uh, you know, not a coach by any means. And yet I have the tools and the ability to do some really cool stuff with it. But from their perspective, it's it's possible to shrug it off as, you know, well, these are just number crunchers. These are just stat geeks. They don't really know the game of basketball, which to a certain extent is true for a lot of people. Uh, but I certainly think that that is an easy excuse to have for certain coaches to kind of stick with their their tried and true methods, even if it's a little bit more ignorant nowadays, just given the wealth of data and wealth of analytically driven strategies that are now available. So I think it's cool to see coaching staffs adapt some of both I've had a lot of conversations this year with different D1 head coaches who are really trying to strike that balance and, you know, make conclusions about their players based on these analytics without throwing out what their their good coaching eyes are telling them. So it's it's a tough balance for sure. But I, I think more coaches are having to lean that way. Impossible to avoid that, especially if you look at the NBA and it began with three versus two. And then now you look at all the different metrics, many of which you've involved at your website. Again, E-V-A-N-M-I-Y-A.com. Um, Let's get into West Virginia a little bit. You did immediately attract new fans. I, I joked that you, you would reach cult status um, very quickly here with your insight about Oscar, about Deuce McBride. Um, and he's obviously a very appealing player because of the way he plays and um, how many marks he hits for formulas and for metrics that we're talking about here, too. What about him stood out? And then the one comp you had about the only time anybody's ever done this ended up being stunning to me. Um, for people who haven't seen this tweet, share with us what you discovered. Yeah, so there's a lot that goes into how good Miles McBride has been this year, and I think he's even exceeded a lot of uh, expectations, even with him being tabbed as a you know breakout star potentially this year. But the the quote simple stat, and yet it's it tells a very strong message, is that he's the only player in the last 19 years uh, to average at least 15.5 points per game, four assists per game at least 47.2% from three and at least 75% from the free throw line. And if you drop that points threshold to 15 points, the only other player in that time span who also averaged those numbers is Chris Paul 
which I think is a great comparison for Miles McBride in terms of his all-around game and just how he runs this offense, runs this team. And when he's clicking, everyone else is clicking. And uh, that 19 years, by the way, uh, is just as far back as I have data. So it's very possible that it goes further than that. Uh, I think there was someone on Twitter who did point out there was a player in maybe 2000 who also reached that threshold. But it's really impressive for him. And uh, part of the reason why I'm interested in Miles McBride in general is not just because his individual stats look good, but also because he evaluates really well in the advanced metrics at my site. Um, and in terms of how well West Virginia is with him on the floor compared to without, it's it's very astounding, really. He, he has the highest plus minus by far for any player on the team. And uh, there's a metric on my site um, when you look at West Virginia's team breakdown tool, which you can pull out a given player and see how well each teammate plays with him on the floor. And every single teammate of Miles McBride is playing better when they're on the floor with him compared to their normal averages, which is the sign of a truly elite player, both in terms of his overall game, but also just his team impact. So it's really impressive what he's doing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Agreed. Now, if people are looking at your site, they're going to see some familiar things. Offensive possessions, defensive possessions. People know that. That's a tally of the possessions. Um, PER, player efficiency rating. Offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're doing points per 100 possessions. Uh, are you and you're adjusting it for the quality of the opposition? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so some of the the stats are purely descriptive. So uh, the a player's team offensive efficiency, for example, is how many points per 100 possessions the team is scoring with that player on the floor. The way that's listed on my website is not adjusted for opponents because I want okay. that to be very interpretable. The stat that is adjusted, which kind of takes all of these metrics together, is BPR, which stands for Bayesian Performance Rating. And so there's an offensive and defensive component for each. And that's the rating that's combining a player's individual stats, his efficiency metrics, his team impact metrics, along with other predictive stuff too, like how well he's played in previous seasons or his recruit ranking if he's a freshman. And that adjusts for the strength of all other players on the floor for every possession that that player plays. So if if a guy has played against stronger opponent players than other teammates, it adjusts accordingly. Similarly, if a guy's getting credit in his plus minus because he's always playing with the star player on his team, it adjusts accordingly. So it takes all of that into account when it's getting a player's overall Bayesian performance rating. There's that word again, Bayesian. Uh, I have not seen this much before. It's not something a lot of people are probably familiar with. Is it something you have just chosen for a reason as a combination of factors? Because you've mentioned the word before. And it sounds like something you're familiar with. Why did that become part of your your presentation here? Yeah, so uh, Bayesian statistics is um, 
a, a newer concept and method of statistics, um, I'd say within the last 10, 15 years. And in terms of just the public knowing what the term is, it's, it's still pretty unknown. But essentially, uh, it's, a, it's an area of statistics that I'm really familiar with and I'm writing a lot of my dissertation concerning. And the, the main uh, philosophy behind Bayesian stats is that uh, in classical statistics, when I mean, say classical, I just mean like normal methods that have been around for a long time. If we're trying to estimate something like, let's say we're trying to estimate um, Miles McBride's points per game, right? Then there's a lot of different games that he's played. And so we often try and estimate that by one number, say his, his average points per game, which is, you know, around 15 or 16. And, but the reality is that if we're trying to predict how well or how many points per game he's going to score going forward, uh, we don't actually think he's going to score exactly 15.5 points per game mm -hmm. for the rest of the season, right? That's actually impossible. So one point is helpful, but Bayesian statistics always puts a level of uncertainty around a prediction going forward. So instead of just using one number to represent what we think will happen, we actually use a distribution, which is basically saying, okay, we think 15.5 is the most likely, but we actually want to represent this with a histogram or a, a bell curve or something, and we include that uncertainty in our predictions. And so in Bayesian statistics, and the way that I'm doing this specifically with my website, is that everywhere that I possibly can, I'm using these methods where instead of just using one number to represent a player or to um, represent his a potential contribution, I actually have that number with a level of uncertainty around it saying, okay, you know, maybe McBride is estimated to score 16 points a game going forward, but there's a good chance it's anywhere between 12 and 20. And so there's ways to represent that using Bayesian methods. And so, for example, a player's um, PER, their player efficiency rating, is a part of what goes into my algorithm. But, uh, you know, Jared Butler's PER right now is 29.0. But when it actually goes into my model, I'm not just using that single number. I'm actually using a range of possible values with them being more likely towards 29. And this models the way that we as humans often think about things because we don't usually just estimate one number. We say, well, you know, it says it's going to be, um, you know, 65 degrees tomorrow. So in your head, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe anywhere between 58 and 72, right? We may not say that explicitly, but we're always thinking in terms of ranges because we know that a single number is actually impossible to, to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just a more natural way to think about things that even if there is one true number that represents the truth, we will never know that number. And so including a range of numbers or a, a distribution of uncertainty is, is a bit more helpful in predicting future metrics. So that's a little bit of a glimpse into how Bayesian statistics works. And I think that was really helpful to bring in this specific setting when we're trying to quantify how well a player is going to impact his team going forward. Absolutely. It's a volatile game. So there should be some volatility involved in how we interpret the stats and probability seems like as volatile as anything else. So why not? Uh, Thomas Bayes is what, 18th century, right? Yeah. I wonder yeah. if he ever predicted something like this happening, but I'm glad he did, right? You've um you've traded back and forth with me some some updated lineup statistics, some updated player combo statistics. They've been very insightful because um West Virginia's season forked after ten games. And I don't know how closely you studied them before, but you certainly looked at the before and the after, and as recently as Wednesday afternoon shipped me some updated numbers there too. Um as much or as little depth as you have, it's probably a good answer, I think, either way. What have you learned about West Virginia since the turn of the calendar year, their past handful of games 
Yeah, so I think the the main distinction, obviously, you know, in those first 10 games versus now is the absence of Oscar Shibwe. And I think that the most interesting thing that stuck out to me from those first 10 games was that when Derek Culver and Shibwe were on the court together, West Virginia was pretty poor. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be super surprising to Mountaineers fans. And, you know, it's been a, a different team really since then. And I the thing I see now in, in their games since then is that Obviously, we've talked about Miles McBride and his impact, and but there's certain combos and lineups that are doing particularly well. Miles McBride and Taz Sherman are are one of those combos. They they're really clicking. The team is really clicking when both of those guys are on the court together, specifically uh, in all areas. And another player duo as well that hasn't played as much, but is doing really well, particularly on defense in in those games since that cutoff is Jalen Bridges and Jordan McCabe, which I found was interesting. Mm. Um, and in general, this new uh, lineup of Bridges, Culver, McBride, McCabe, and Sherman is doing really well. You know, granted they haven't faced quite as good opposition as some of the other lineups used, but uh, they're they're it's it's been really working for West Virginia. So yeah, those are my those are my first takeaways when looking at those metrics. Let me go off script to put you on the spot here for a second, if you don't mind. The Bridges-McKay thing got your attention. It got mine, too. And I think a lot of people listen and go, no way. What do you do when your eyes don't match the numbers? I don't think you abandon one or the other, but how do you reconcile that? Yeah, so I think uh, sample size is important. And, you know, in those the games since those first 10, uh, they played a little bit over 100 possessions together, which is certainly not enough to make a conclusive sweeping statement that they're really, really good together. So I think, you know, especially with the lineup combo stuff, um, when you're early in a season, or, or in this case, early in looking at a particular set of players or a particular lineup, I think early on it's important just to, to identify p- certain trends and to and start to inform how you're watching those games. And I think that's helpful for coaches as well because, you know, I can't just go and say definitively, oh, Bridges and McCabe, great combo. They're the best two players or anything. Obviously, that's probably not true. But now that you're aware of this 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 subtle impact that they're having that you might not pick up ordinarily, it informs the way that you watch games and allows you to identify things qu- closer. And so I think it's going to be an interesting trend going forward to watch at the very least. It's a good point because if a coach puts those guys out there and then all of a sudden they get smoked for four halves in a row – Maybe the trend is going the other direction. The sample size is growing, and all of a sudden, it's not as good of an idea. So, again, don't abandon either one, but use it as a starting point for what you learn and what you ingest. So I mean, That makes sense. I like that. Something else I think that you know more about, because uh, you've done some in-depth study of West Virginia historically, but you have found some some interesting, provocative, worthwhile uh, indicators, stats, if you will, for wins and losses um, over the past handful of years. Share that with us, please. Yeah, so this is really interesting stuff. It's not something that I have publicly available. It's it's something that's more uh, privately available, particularly as I'm starting to put some material together that I can um, help different head coaches with and coaching staffs. But So I've looked at some trends for West Virginia over the last five years under Bob Huggins. And particularly, I think it's useful to know if there are certain metrics in a game that are really important for particular teams to hit in terms of knowing how they predict wins and losses. Mm-hmm. So here's one, for example, for West Virginia. West Virginia has always been associated with a certain kind of defense and in particular forcing turnovers. And so I don't think it's really a surprise here that winning the turnover battle for West Virginia over the last five years has been really important, specifically in games where they have won the turnover battle, have had less turnovers than, than their opponent. They are 82 and 21, which is an 80 percent win percentage. 
Mm. And in games when they lose that turnover battle, 17 and 35, so dipping down to 33%. That disparity between them winning and losing that battle in terms of win percentage is much larger for them than for the average D1 team. So that shows how important it is for West Virginia to win that battle. Another interesting one is on defense. If they hold an opponent under 48% on two-point shots mm-hmm. over the last five years, so under 48% from two, they're 65 and 13. That's 83% wins. If they don't do that, they're 34 and 43, which is 44% win percentage. So once again, jumping from 83% winning if they hold that their opponents under 48 percent from two to down to 44 that's a big difference and so that's a key metric i think to watch going forward for this west virginia team this year is if they can they they can hit those metrics i like it let's rattle off some questions here about these six games five opponents coming up for west virginia are you ready let's do it all right um west virginia plays kansas saturday kansas made i think this is an accurate number uh, 712 three-pointers the first time they played west virginia it only felt like that um, and they have not done that since. Just haven't shot it very well. But they do get open shots. West Virginia gives up open shots. It worries people a lot. But there's also this prevailing question about Kansas. Is this team Kansas? Is it good? We're not sure. They may fall out of the top 25 before long, especially if they don't win Saturday. But it's still Kansas. And it just kind of feels weird not to see them at the top of the Big 12, maybe falling out of the top 25, and actually asking yourself, is Kansas good? I don't know. What do you think? Uh I mean, I think the simple answer is if you take their team name off and strap a different team that has similar metrics on there, they they have a much lower evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, Bill Self and Kansas teams are always really solid, but I've actually been lower on Kansas most of the year than pretty much everyone else. I've got them 24th in the nation right now uh, in my team ratings at my site, which is similar to Ken Palm. I think they're 22nd. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to December 23rd, when they were 7-1, and one, had just beaten West Virginia— I had them at 18th, and they were as high as 6th at that time in Ken Palm. So I've always been a little bit lower on them this year, and I think they're kind of settling in and right around about where they are. They're they're 4-5 and five since that, that early stretch, and their only good win is against Oklahoma. Now, granted, all of their losses are versus tournament teams, so I think that in some ways overinflates their value. But uh, they just don't have uh, a primary star, I think. Marcus Garrett and Ochai Baji are good secondary options, but neither of them have as complete a game offensively to really carry the team. And defensively, you know, Marcus Garrett has been disappointing this year. He was really, really good last year, and he evaluated super well in the defensive metrics at my site and was, I think, the highest or second highest predicted defensive player this year. But he's down to 12th in the conference in defensive Bayesian performance rating and 22nd in the Big 12 overall. So, uh, you know, it's been disappointing for them, and they've got to really whip into shape if they're going to actually be, you know, somewhat dangerous in March. Up next will be a road game against Texas Tech. I think a lot of people see parallels between West Virginia and Texas Tech. The head coaches are both Bobby Knight guys. They run motion offenses. Um, Texas Tech is perhaps overachieved, I think, as quickly as they have with their coach, but weren't great last year, but have been very good this year. I wonder, is it all Mac McClung? Had they recruited at such a high level, those guys are contributing right away or contributing finally. Um, how do we explain their success and, and their trajectory right now? Yeah, I think that the storyline with Tech is Mac McClung, but I actually think that it's this is a very Chris Beard team in the sense that it's it's really, uh, really solid across the board. I mean, they've got a lot of dudes on their team. 
Uh, Terrence Shannon actually is the best on the team in offensive rating at my site. And Marcus Santos Silva is the best in defensive rating. Mark, Mac McClung is kind of in the middle of the park of their starters in terms of these offensive and defensive metrics. But they've they've got a lot of really solid contributors on this team. And it's not just Mac McClung, even though he's certainly the flashiest on the team. And I think they're they're a better team than their resume. You know, they're they're 14th at my site and they're only 27th in strength of record. So, you know, I think Mac McClung, game winners, clutch shots, that's what's really getting the headlines. But they've got another solid defense again. So they've got a really a, a lot of really solid components there. Then it's a home game against Oklahoma. They have taken West Virginia's lunch money the past season plus. How? Why has this happened? This last game in particular I found was kind of bizarre because I think the only reason Oklahoma won that game was because Emoja Gibson had 29 points, and he hasn't scored more than 14 in any of their other games <laughs> this year. So, I mean, th- that seems like an outlier to me, and I think this is a prime game for West Virginia to win. Oklahoma, to me, is just a really gritty team, and I think we saw that in their last game, even missing Austin Reeves you know, versus Alabama. They just play really, really hard, and obviously Brady Manick, you know, has some ups and downs this year, but he's really solid. He's fifth in the conference in offensive rating at my website. And uh, Elijah Harkless, I think, is an underrated defender. He's been really incredible this year. Mm-hmm. If you look at Oklahoma's uh, numbers defensively with him on the court versus not, there's a huge difference between his defensive metrics and everyone else on the team. He's actually third in the Big 12 in team defensive efficiency behind Mark Vidal and Flo Thamba for Baylor. And that's really significant because Baylor has been blowing out teams and playing really well defensively. So the fact that Elijah Harkless uh, has Oklahoma playing, you know, has the third best team defensive efficiency uh, at only 84 points per 100 possessions is really something. So he's kind of an underrated piece for them. Move on to a team that you know very well. West Virginia has the pleasure of back-to-back games against Baylor in any other year that the number one team in the country in a runaway this, to me, is, is one of the most fun teams to watch in quite some time because uh, they play terrific, terrific defense, and they'll play offense very well, too. They can score 100, and they can win by 40 by only scoring 80. It's kind of a unique talent. How great is Baylor, and why has this come together so convincingly for this team? Uh, I think my simple way of explaining Baylor is that they just have one too many good playmakers at any given time. I mean, a defense can play really well and shut down two, three, maybe even four of their guys, but there's always one more who can have a big game who's left wide open. And so I think it's just overwhelming for teams. And defensively, they're really good. I think they've actually been a little bit lax this year because of how good they are offensively, but they're always hunting for turnovers. And they've got four of the top 10 players in the nation in Bayesian performance rating. And that's been that case for that way for a while. So I am really curious, though, about the back-to-back with West Virginia because um, – as I've seen this season, uh, the second game of a back-to-back kind of often re- reverse reverses the result of the first game. So if a play, if a team played really well in that first game, uh, it's often a little bit the other direction in the second. So that could be really interesting for Baylor uh, in trying to get past West Virginia in two straight games. So there's actually a good chance for West Virginia to potentially get an upset there if they're they're really playing well in one of those two games. Finally, and the stretch ends here with Texas. Texas wins at West Virginia on an Andrew Jones three. Literally a 50-50 outcome there. If it goes in, they win. If it rattles out, West Virginia wins. This team is is interesting to me. They have guards that really haven't played collectively as well as they have this year before this season, but maybe that's what guards do. They get older, they get better. 
and yet a lot of their twitchy athletic talent is in the front court. Shaka Smart seems like he stirred the drink the right way and blended it all together, but does this team go as far as the guards take him, or is it going to win games by getting some of that front court dominance, rebounding, defense, easy two-point baskets? Yeah, Texas is a bit of an enigma to me this year. I mean, their bigs are really athletic, but I think their guard play is what can make them elite. And that's Mm -hmm. certainly what kept them in the game versus Baylor uh, on Tuesday is, you know, Andrew Jones making big shots. No one statistically is having a great season for them. They've certainly got pieces there and they've got names and they've got veterans, but I don't think they have one player they can really rely on. And uh, I, I just think collectively they haven't really reached their potential even. So, if they start playing, I, I think they have the potential to play even better than they have. But uh, I, I, I do think that they um, they don't have anyone really elite on their team, and I think they're struggling more than 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 some people might think that they are in terms of getting all their pieces to click. So they've still got some work to do, and that'll be an interesting matchup with a really well coached West Virginia team. Let's close up here, Evan, with um, I don't know, a pop quiz for you here, using your general knowledge, but also expert knowledge on the topic of college basketball. You have teams that you like more than others. You have teams that maybe others don't agree with you as much on. Um, we're looking 68 teams in the tournament here, provided we have one. Knock, knock, knock. Um, are there teams, players that you think we're sleeping on, or vice versa, that maybe you think are a little overvalued compared to where you have them? Who should we be looking for going up or down? Yeah, so I think one team that isn't necessarily undervalued, but just isn't being talked about enough is Houston in the American. They're they've just been really solid this season, and I don't think they get enough credit just due to the the nature of the conference that they're in. But even without their uh, their their preseason star in Caleb Mills, they've been really, really, really good this year. And I think they're gonna want to take that spotlight in March once they're finally playing national relevant games uh, in the tournament. So they're fourth in the nation right now. And then another team as well is San Diego state. I have them really high at seventh in the nation, but they've got three guys that lead that team that are all really solid pieces. And, uh, I think they, they dipped a little bit after the first couple weeks of the season, but, uh, they look really strong to me. So I, I'm interested to see how, how well they do, but they're, they're ranked on my website ahead, the like ahead of the likes of Virginia, Wisconsin, Alabama, Texas, even. So, I'm really interested to see how they do going down the stretch. So I think the main team that's I think is overrated, and we talked about them already, is Kansas for for reasons that I already stated. Okay. Uh, if you and Ken Palm are in the same room, what happens? Um, I'll probably just cede the floor to him. He's uh he he's been around around this for a lot longer than I have, and certainly he's someone that I uh, really inspired by his work, and and uh, hopefully that you know in the in the next year or two I can can show that my stuff is being competitive with his, but uh, a lot of respect for him for sure. Last one here. Uh, yes or no question, because I'm sure since you said this, people listening are wondering, their their mind is racing here, but college coaches have contacted you. I don't want names. Would we know the identities of any of these coaches? Yeah, so largely coming from smaller schools that don't have quite as big budgets to invest in big uh, you know, analytics firms or, or be able to have people on their own staff. So... Uh, definitely not quite uh, power five level for a lot of these, but but it's definitely some interesting situations and one or two that are having really, really good seasons this year. Well, I just wanted yes or no, but as always, Evan, such depth and detail with the information you provide. You can find all the depth and detail you want at his website, uh, evanmiya.com. Evan, anything you'd like to plug, alert people to, have them on the lookout for? The floor is yours. Yeah, not really. Uh, you 
cover the main stuff. I'm on uh, my website, and then I'm at Twitter on Twitter at the same handle. Uh, so you can find my stuff there. Just trying to, to put stuff that's interesting to people as I can. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk West Virginia. They're a really fun team to discuss this year. Well, I love. A, I hope everybody else did too. Evan will hopefully do this again sometime soon. If not, we'll just keep trading DMs back and forth, and you'll make me a lot smarter to my followers than I am on my own. So I thank you for that. I thank you for what you're doing, and I wish you the best of luck. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. All right, take care.